Merry Christmas. It is good to see you, and welcome back to part three of a series that we are calling I Am Jesus. And so on week three, we're looking at this claim Jesus made, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, the claims of Jesus got him killed. He was crucified about A.D. 33. And this particular claim is interesting to me because we kind of think of it as kind of a nice metaphoric uh, image, but it was one that was inflammatory. It was one that caused the enemies of Jesus to become intensely angry. And we're going to take a look at that claim. John begins his gospel with this. If you'll move to chapter one there. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how he begins his gospel. That's verse five. He's gonna be connecting Jesus who claimed to be the light. He's gonna be showing how the darkness could not overcome the light. Now let's just talk about that for a little bit. If you were like me, when you were a kid, you didn't like the darkness. I mean, if you're honest, there's probably still places that are dark that you've been to that make you feel a little uneasy. In that darkness, there's a little bit of fear. And we're not really afraid of the fact that the light is off. We're afraid of something else that's hidden there. And there's a fear. now. Maybe you were like me. All it took is a little nightlight, and then the darkness would be gone. It doesn't take much light for darkness to have to back off. And darkness has no ability to overcome light. Light always overcomes darkness. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Now, there were those that he confronted, and in his confrontation, they wanted to stomp his lights out. They really did. Now, a lot of people, when asked the question, who do you think Jesus is? They come up in our day with really lame answers. Lame answers like, I think he was a good moral teacher. Jesus does not leave us that option. That's a really lame answer. I mean, you could start to say things like, I really thought he taught really good moral things, he changed the world by this moral teaching, and a lot of people were affected but good because of the things that he taught. However, if he was just a good moral teacher, why was he crucified? He claimed these claims, and the religious leaders of his day wanted to kill him for these claims. So in week one, we took a look at the fact that he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And week two, we took a look at the fact that he claimed to be the good shepherd. And now we're looking at the fact that he is claiming to be the light of the world. And the religious leaders didn't like these claims, and he was crucified A.D. 33. Our focus for today reads this way. I'm jumping all around. You're going to have to keep up with me back there. Only Jesus is the answer to our darkness. Only Jesus is the answer 
to our darkness. And so let's take a look at John chapter eight, the claim that we're focusing in on. We're jumping right into the middle of a narrative where he spills out this incredible statement. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. An incredible claim. We have a couple of puzzles in history. The one puzzle that we've already sort of been talking about is why was Jesus crucified? If he's such a good man and he taught so many marvelous things, why was he crucified? I'm trying to help us to see that what the gospels write down as the claims of Jesus are claims that he really made. This is not made up stuff. This really happened. He really claimed these things. It made the religious people of his day so angry, they plotted to kill him. They wanted to stomp his lights out. The second puzzle that I want us to look at today is the puzzle of what is it that happened to one of these religious leaders that had not met Jesus yet, hadn't been confronted by Jesus yet, but when the movement began to explode and spread across the globe, he was so upset and so zealous for his Jewish faith that he began to persecute Christians, drag them off to prison, even stand in agreement with them being killed Why is it that suddenly this man, who we know as Paul, who was in Jewish circles called Saul, his Jewish name, but he was a Roman citizen, so in Gentile circles, a Roman name, Paul, what was it that made him do a 180 degree turn? He's the most unlikely convert that history has ever recorded. What happened? I think it all plays into the reality that Jesus didn't just claim it, but he is the light of the world. So let's take a look at that focus again. Only Jesus is the answer to our darkness. This is part of what Jesus is claiming. Do you see how huge the claim is? I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. Now, this puzzle in history, what happened, is actually told to us three different times in the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, a traveling companion of Paul. Several times in the book of Acts, we're listening to Paul's own description of what happened. One time, the time we're about to take a look at, he's describing what happened to him before a jury, so to speak, and a king. And while he's in this trial, describing what has happened to him, the king says, what are you, trying to convert me? He says, if I could convert you, I would. I would hope that anybody would come to know this truth. Here's the story through the lips of Paul on the third go-around in the book of Acts, chapter 26. Now, if you want to take a look at this later, you might want to jot this down because I'm not going to tell you um, this several times here. 
You can read chapter nine, and you can read chapter 22, and some of the other details will show up about this story when Paul explains what happened that caused him to do a 180 degree turn and believe that this crucified Messiah was actually the light of the world, that he truly was the risen king of the universe. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me. Pause. He doesn't describe how he was actually blinded by this light in this particular narrative. You can read about that in the other sections that I told you about. He was blinded by the light, and later, after this whole thing takes place, God commissions somebody to meet him and pray with him and restore his blindness. It was that bright. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? Next slide. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So he tells the story of what caused his 180 degree turn from being the most powerful persecutor trying to stomp out the light of the movement that had exploded into growth because all the apostles are saying, he's risen, he's risen, we've seen him, he's risen, and all the eyewitnesses are still alive and well. Now, what you need to understand is this convert, the most unlikely convert, skeptic scholars and believing scholars all agree Paul is the most influential person other than Jesus to shape the course of Christianity. Paul was a scholar, a religious, well-known scholar. And he had to do 180 degrees to fit what his experience was, having met the glorified, resurrected Jesus, who's obviously more than a man, into the theology of Judaism. And Paul then began to write letter after letter after letter, when he had the time, and usually it was while he was in prison. And that 
13 letters of Paul comprise 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Jesus was crucified A.D. 33. Paul's first book was written A.D. 48. 15 years. A lot of people don't recognize this, that the believing scholars and the unbelieving scholars all agree within the first generation there's a movement that believes in a resurrected Jesus. Paul promoted this very, very clearly. And he wrote from, from AD 48, 49, all the way through his martyrdom in 60, mid-60, I'll just say, because I don't remember. I have to look it up. All right. So here's Paul's story about how light opened his eyes But really what's fascinating was he was made blind in the process, so two miracles are required. One miracle to open his eyeballs to see again, and another miracle to open his heart to understand that this is reality, my friend. This isn't something made up. You're trying to stomp out reality, and darkness will not succeed in stomping out darkness because I have been given the keys of the kingdom and Hell itself cannot stand against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly no man can, and Paul had to come to terms with how wrong he was. History's interesting puzzle. What was it that changed Paul? Ready for point number one? The law of God reveals our guilt. The law of God reveals our guilt. That seems like an odd point to make when I've been talking about light and darkness. But the interesting thing is, where Jesus' claim takes place in John chapter eight, the literary context is so fascinating to me, what precedes it and what follows it. What follows it is Jesus making a blind man see. And Jesus frustrated with the blindness of the religious leaders who refused to see. And what precedes it is a story about the harshness of the law of God and what is Jesus going to do about it. And so I thought it would be nice to just look at that context. And to tell you, honestly, that context is a little confusing to me because of the historic note right within the text Does this belong here? Well, historically and literarily, we have it here. I think we have it here because it really happened. And there's this textual note in your Bibles. You grab the chair Bible in front of you. I think there's a textual note there. I'm sorry I didn't note which page that is. It's John chapter eight, the very, very front end. But I believe it really happened. And here's the issue, okay. God has these laws and it's very, very bright and harsh and this woman is guilty. Let's just read this story together. Here we go. John 8, starting at verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. How embarrassing is that? Caught in the act and drug out from the act into a public space 
at the temple, and now they're ready to interrogate her, but they're less interested in interrogating her because she's been caught in the act. They're more interested in interrogating Jesus. Where do you stand as it relates to the law? They think they've trapped him. Let's keep reading. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. It's like, time out, pause. I'm not even gonna look at you at this point. I'm just gonna let you sit there with this long, awkward pause. Now, I want so much to know what he's writing in the dirt. (laughs) I really do. But we don't know. We really don't. We can make guesses, but we don't know. We just have this very uncomfortable silence when they're interrogating Jesus. Now, what are they interrogating him about? What trap do they think they're springing? It's a trap that goes something like this. If he refuses to stone her, we've got him. Because surely he's not a man of God who upholds the law of God because we have it in print right here that such a person should be stoned according to the laws of Moses because the laws reveal our guilt. And if he says, sure, you're right, you caught her, stone her, we've got him. Because the crowds love him. They love the grace and compassion that he has. That is why these crowds are so drawn to him. All the religious leaders always look down their noses at the common people. And the common people don't live up to the standard of their standards as taught. And so we've got them. If he says stone her, they'll stop following him. If he says don't stone her, it's easy to get them to stop following him. We've got him. And there's just waiting. And he surprises everyone. Point number two. The love of Jesus reveals God's grace. Where the law of God reveals our guilt, the love of Jesus reveals God's grace. We have a tension here. Let's continue in the story. When they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He just left that statement there, doesn't even look at them, doesn't even stare them down, doesn't even drill into their eyes to bring guilt. He just says what he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Picture the scene. The accusers who really are trying to trap Jesus, now walk away from the light of the world. 
Now, it's true, they dropped their stones. They're no longer going to stone her. They're not really concerned about her, haven't been from the beginning. They're just using her. I say that because I want to ask the question, caught in the act, where is the man? We don't know. But they walk away from the light of the world, biding their time to get them at some other point because at this point, it's like, after that statement, we can't stone her. After that statement, what are we supposed to do? All they can do is leave, lick their wounds, bide their time, wait for another time to trap him, to get him. And they did, from their perspective. But darkness does not overcome the light. Point number three. The light of the world reveals our hope. So, the law of God reveals our guilt. The love of Jesus reveals God's grace. The light of the world reveals our hope. Listen, this woman is not the only one who is caught in the act of sin. And that's why they, who hear Jesus say, those of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. They have to go, because they know it, that they themselves are sinners, even though they are the religious leaders of their nation. They know, listen, we know too. We know that we are sinners. We don't even know how well we need to know how much we sin. We're so busy dodging that, excusing that, hiding that, but we've been caught in the act every time because God knows and sees every time. And you know what? Even if you don't believe in God's law and you don't feel guilty, you yourself know. You don't live up to your own ideal much less God's ideal. You fall short of what you think it means to be the man you should be, the father you should be, the husband you should be, the wife you should be, the person you should be. You fall short and you know it. The light of the world is our only hope. Let's continue in this story. We were not finished with it yet. Jesus straightened up. There's just the two of them now. I find it fascinating that the religious leaders withdraw. They move away from Jesus. She has a chance to run, but she doesn't. She stands there, captivated by the man who has just rescued her. She's not sure where this is going. She has no idea how this interchange is going to go between him and her, and I'm sure she's standing there still rather awkwardly before a man. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see how Jesus is not trapped by the dilemma? Do you see how they thought if 
He doesn't stone her. He's not upholding God's righteous standard, the brilliantly bright light of holiness. He still upholds it. And yet he's not willing to condemn her. He is revealing the grace and love and compassion of the very God who says, you're a sinner. Go now and leave your life of sin. What does it mean to be the one who claims, I am the light of the world? Here's a couple of possibilities on the screen. What does it mean, I am the light of the world? If you don't follow him, you will continue to walk in darkness. If I don't follow him, I walk in darkness. Every time I'm not following him, I'm walking in darkness. If we don't follow him, we're walking in darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. So when he says to the woman, Go. I'm not condemning you. And sin no more. There's an invitation from the rescuer of her life. Out of this grace of rescue, he still calls sin, sin. And she views him in a whole new way. And he lifts her up with a rescuing statement, go and sin no more. Do you see that this is an invitation to follow him? but he hasn't completed his course. He was saying, if you follow me, you will have the light. If you follow me, you have me. While you're following me, you're not walking in darkness. Follow me. It's like there's this attraction. It's the attraction to the brilliant light that's frightening. At the same time, it's drawing. And some of us feel that same tension like a moth drawn to a flame. It's frightening, but draws me. I'm afraid to leave my life. I'm afraid of what that will mean, but the hope of the light is drawing me. And she felt that. She felt that strongly. He's the one who guides us out of our darkness to light. No other light can remove our sin and guilt. He gives us forgiveness and hope. Let's take a look at the claim again, which is just verses later from this description of the interchange between the sinful woman who represents all of us caught in sin, but that's a real thing that took place with her, her most embarrassing, most humiliating, most shame-filled moment of life, never to be forgotten. And how does she come away from it? Hope. Woman, I don't condemn you. I didn't come to condemn you. I have come to rescue you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. O believer, O follower of Jesus Christ, are you really comfortable holding on to darkness 
in claiming to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus won't let you be comfortable there. As you stand alone with him, and he says to you, who is there to condemn you? You say, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Turn, drop it, follow me. What are you doing? You claim to be my follower. Follow me. You cannot continue in this darkness and claim to be following the light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Every time you hang on to that darkness and you claim to be a believer, there is a contradiction going on. You are not following me in that darkness. Darkness cannot swallow up the truth. You cannot hide the truth. The truth is exposed. Now come, expose it to the reality and follow me. Some of you perhaps came today as a seeker, a skeptic, yet curious. And suddenly, as you're hearing the very words of Jesus and fitting it within the framework of history, something is shifting inside of you. There's a hope, there's an attraction to this claim. There's actually a credibility in history Yes, there is. And Jesus invites you. Go. Sin no more. And really, now that he has accomplished the work, come. Follow me. Because if you have me, you'll have the light. If you have the light, you have me. Follow me. Oh, it's terrifying, like a flame to a moth, to drop all of the things that we're so busy hiding from anybody and everybody. He says, drop it, drop the act. I see, I know, drop it, come, follow me. Now, interestingly, in chapter eight, we read this later on. Verse 30, even as he spoke, many believed in him. Throughout John, this kind of statement has been made frequently when Jesus does a miracle, and he did a lot of them. But in this chapter, it's only because of his claims, only because of his teaching, only because of the clash between the darkness of religion and an invitation to join him in a relationship. Do you see that clash? The darkness of religion that shines the light of God as an interrogator to blister you with a burden you can never release yourself from. Religion says, try harder, do more, you're guilty, fix it. And Jesus says, wrong remedy. Correct diagnosis, wrong remedy. I have come to give you the remedy. 
The only reason I can come and not condemn is I've come to bring forgiveness. I've come to pay your debt. I've come to absorb all of your guilt and sin and nail it to the cross and pay that debt and set you free. Now the blistering light of God can enter into you. Come and follow me. Because if you have the light, you have me. And if you follow me, you have the light. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for sending your precious, beloved son who knew only love and acceptance from eternity past to take on weakness, to come as a baby, then to head downhill from there to become our servant, the servant of all, even to the point of death, to carry the guilt away as the Lamb of God. Thank you for sending the light of the world into our darkness and to provide us with a remedy. Oh God, give us the courage to identify the sin and darkness, to confess it, to shed your light on it, to drop it and turn 180 towards you. Oh God, thank you for the hope. Thank you for the accurate diagnosis. Thank you for the remedy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.